The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today's question was asked by one of my daughters, and uh, the specific question that was asked was, why did God let sin come into the world in the first place? And I have reworked that question, broadened it out to not only include sin, but all forms of evil. And last week we addressed natural evil. This week we address moral evil. The question on the table specifically is this. Is God less glorious because... There's not a question here. Is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? Natural evil, death, disease, destruction. Moral evil, sin. This is not just random coffee table talk, is it? We're talking about the very nature of God, and so we have to approach it delicately. Because God is not the doer, Of any wicked thing. He is all good all the time. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And yet he is also all sovereign all the time. So today we enter into a very challenging area. How does the ultimate God, who is in charge of all things, who is all good, that means he hates evil, who is all sovereign, that means he's able to stop evil. How is he related to the sins that you and I do, to the sins that other people do to us? And some of them are extremely heinous and painful. So as we go there, I'm just going to ask God for more grace. Fresh mercies at dawn, that's what Jesus purchased for us. All that we need for today, including all that we need for this For this class, grace to listen, grace to receive, grace to surrender our lives to the big God that we're going to see today from the Word. A God who does not exist side by side with an equal power, but a God who exists over top of all other things, whether it be the human heart or whether it be Satan. All things. A God who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11 So let's pray. Father, the 70 of us or so in this room ask You for help. Blood-bought, purchased help right now. You are justified to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of what Jesus did. You are justified to let there be fruits of sanctification in our life because of what Jesus did. And I ask for deeper levels of awareness of who you are, deeper levels of awareness of who we are, our own neediness, our own desperation, knowing that our very holiness is fully dependent on you so that you would get the glory and we would be able to not boast in ourselves in any pursuit. All the while, choosing, working, working with all the energy with which you work in us. 
We want to see sin destroyed, Father. And Jesus died so that it would happen. It's going to come. You are saving us now from our sins, and you will save us completely from sin. And we long for that day. I pray for grace that we would have ears to hear and a heart that would be shapeable in your hand, surrendered to your book. Help me as a teacher. I don't want to force anything. I just want to be dependent and point to you. So help me, I pray. In Christ, amen. Last week, we looked at natural evil, death, disease, and destruction, and here was my conclusion from the Many, many, many texts that we looked at. All natural evils like death, disease, and destruction ultimately derive from the decree of God and fit into His ultimate purpose. Who have, who's made man's mouth, Moses? Who makes him dumb and deaf and seeing and blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I kill and I make alive. And no one. No one can, it's, it's close, it's there. Deuteronomy 32, 39, it's there. No one, something, no, no one, something. <laughs> Deuteronomy 32, 39. All things fit into God's ultimate purpose And one of the questions that we're asking is, well, what then is that purpose? And last week we saw that that suffering is one of the means of grace in our own lives to, to nurture fear, dependence, because God opposes the proud. And therefore, suffering and pain are a means of grace to keep us humble, keep us dependent on our God. It puts us in a context where we can receive His love. He gets glory, we get help. We find a father who does not give a snake to those who ask for bread. Summary text that God controls all things. He makes nations great. He destroys them. That is our God. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise, and He gives knowledge to the discerning. That is who our God is. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does what He wants to do. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That was Job's challenge. At the end of the book, what happens is He turned the tables around and He said, God... I've been a man of integrity, which God affirms. But then he says, you have no right to do this to me. Elihu says specifically, Job began to justify himself rather than to justify God. To say, you are a God of justice. You do what is right, even though you don't disclose to me everything. And I don't understand why. Why me? Why this hard? Why this long? I don't know. We continue to say, you are God, and I am not. You alone are my help. So please help me, even though I don't understand. The lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. Pastor John has been known to use this text to say, every roll of the dice in Vegas 
is ordained by the living God. Everyone. All things are from Him. All things are through Him. All things are to Him. He Himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 2635, 133rd lane, north, east, west. He said, Deroshis, you're going to live there at this time in history. He gave us our address. He's determined the boundaries of our existence. That's how big God is. Nothing, nothing by chance. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So my conclusion from this, from God's perspective, there's no such thing as chance. He controls all. So that was last week. Here's Charles Spurgeon. Now remember, he's writing 125 years ago. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less that God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches. That's how big our God is. And we want a God that that is that big. We can't understand Him, but we need one that's that big. Because if the pains in our life are catching Him off guard, who's to say when I enter into into that hospital room and I want to give hope to the sufferer, Who's to say that God will help you? Well, if this is catching him off guard, who's to say that he can help you? He might get caught off guard the next time we pray. But that's not the God of the Bible. He's a God that does not disclose everything to us. We don't know why he's doing it the way he is doing it. We saw that in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he is a God who was on the throne Before the pain came, and he's on the throne now. And in that we find hope. And to know that that God who is so big is for us and not against us. All of a sudden, we have a rock to stand on in the midst of a sea of suffering. So today we come to this extremely challenging topic. Well, how does this big God relate to the sins that happen in the world? Sin is extremely serious. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's how serious it is. God is not a universalist, wherein everybody in the universe gets to enjoy eternity with Him. Only those who repent, only of those who come to Jesus get to be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which it can happen. He is the way, the truth, the life. And all those who refuse to surrender to Him as Lord, confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's kingship talk. 
Only those who surrender their lives and say no to sin and yes to Him, not perfectly overnight, it doesn't happen that way, but progressively, increasingly, over a lifetime, seeing and bearing fruits of increased dependence, increased hunger, increased seeing, God, I honor you, I want to live for you. Those kind of people are the ones that enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Anybody know the next verse? And such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified by the big kind, saving God. These are serious sins. The people who are characterized, identified by this kind of living will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the seriousness of it. Now how do we fight it? Scripture would say God alone holds us back from sinning. Notice these examples. God alone kept Abimelech pure when he took Sarah, Abraham's wife. Remember the king of Philistia, Abraham and Sarah come close. He steals Sarah, the king does. And then God shows up in wrath. God said to Abimelech in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. You didn't know that this was his wife. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I'm the one who kept you from going and sleeping with this girl. You haven't committed adultery yet. And it was I who kept you from doing it. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Jacob knew that God alone held Laban back from hurting him. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. That's how he, his, his worldview says God's in charge of it all. God's the one who held Laban back from being as wicked as he could have been. David stressed that God alone could keep a person from sinning. Keep back your servant also, O God, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. He's praying it because he's looking to God to make it happen in him. This isn't something we can just work up in our own souls. We need blood-bought grace. That is, the only sins that we can beat in our lives are forgiven sins. If we're not pursuing holiness with God already being 100% for us through Jesus, we have no power. So we pray, keep me back, God. David believed that God alone had restrained him from killing Nabal. Remember, Nabal was a dork. He wouldn't, David was kind to him, he wouldn't be kind to David's men. He had a very nice wife, and she was wise, and countered David when he was going in route to slaughter Nabal. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. You didn't show up just randomly. No, God was on the move. He sent you to me this day to meet me. 
Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly my morning, by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. God held me back from sinning. That's David's worldview. And only God's decisive act can actually save us out of our rebellion. God's the decisive mover from death to life in our pursuit of holiness. God is the decisive mover so that we can't boast in ourselves. God does not set up a system wherein we can all become really good Pharisees. He's fighting against that so that he gets all the glory, and that is right, and that is necessary, and that is loving. I've taught on that before. But in the, it's, it's loving because it's only him who can save us. It's loving because he is the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure in our lives. He's not saying don't desire things, don't pursue gain. He's saying don't settle for second best when you could have me, when you could pursue my ways. God is the great mover. Israel, three favorite words of Moses. You're rebellious, you're stubborn, and you're unbelieving. Why? To this day, God has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. They had eyes to see the power of God at the Exodus, but they didn't have spiritual eyes to see. They remained deaf to His word, even though they had heard it a whole bunch from Moses. Their spiritual senses were dead. And this text says, why? God didn't give them what they needed. No, my sons, Eli says, it is not good what I hear. I hear that you're sleeping with the female temple servants. I hear that you're stealing God's food, food that was designated It's God's food. That's what people bring the sacrifices for him to consume at the altar. But some of the meals he allows to be spread out so that those who bring their offering get to enjoy a potluck in the presence of the great king. They bring their, their, their offering to the king's palace called the temple. And then he says, stick around and you can enjoy some of the food. But the priests, the older priests, were not allowing the people to enjoy the parts that were set, aside, set apart for them. They were just claiming it. We'll take, our, we'll take that piece. It is not good what you're doing. This report that I hear, the people of the Lord spreading abroad, but they wouldn't listen to their father because it was the Lord's will to kill them. God wouldn't overcome their hardness because he had other purposes for them. They would not repent. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to be resistant, and they kept being resistant. But there was a greater hand at work, a bigger hand, a sovereign hand, that let them continue as they were. And unless God intruded and changed the course of their lives, nothing would be different. Without God, as the decisive mover, we cannot be saved from our life of rebellion. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We are justified, that is made right before God as a gift. That's how it happens. It's just a gift. We receive it. We, we bring nothing. He gives us everything. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice that having been set free is in the passive. You've been set free by someone. That's why he starts out, thanks be to God you obeyed. Thanks be to God you obeyed. We want to nurture in this church a thanks be to God kind of obedience. But now that you have been set free, there's the divine passive again. God set you free. But he words it in the passive sense. Now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get, it overflows. In light of what God has done in our justification, it overflows in a pursuit of holiness, sanctification, and its end is eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now, look at back here. All have sinned and are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, so having been set free, that's justification, that's a gift. The fruit you get is it leads to sanctification, and the free gift of God is eternal life. So you've got justification, sanctification, and eternal life. That's the flow. Justification is a gift. It, the fruit you get is sanctification, and its end is eternal life, which is a gift. So if the beginning is a gift, and the end is a gift, then the middle is thanks be to God. God is the decisive mover in our move from death to life. Not just in our justification, but all the way through. God is the one we are dependent on. If He does not overcome our sin, we will continue to sin. Does this mean we don't work? No, we work hard. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Hear that? By the grace of God, that's why I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. Indeed, I worked harder. I worked harder. I worked harder. We don't have to be afraid of that language. But it was not I, but Christ working in me. Work out your salvation with fear, with trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. These are not competing realities, my work and God's work. It's not that we have to stop our work. No, we just need to work in a way that doesn't replace grace. So that God gets the glory. And we recognize that what we are experiencing is all from His hand. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It's a gift. It's a gift. You were dead, but God. You were dead, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He's the one who made us alive. Apart from God as the decisive mover, we cannot see salvation from our rebellion. Sin is serious, and God's the only answer. I'm not just talking about our justification, our conversion. 
Now all things are well. No, God is even the only answer right now. As I as a dad, as I as a husband, as I as a professor, as a shepherd, continue to battle sin. My daily sins are by grace overcome. Period. So if God is the only answer to getting me out of sin, how does the same God relate to my sin? And what I want us to try to envision is that God's in charge of all things. And there is no part of this world, whether it be Satan or the human heart, who is operating, hear that, or the human heart, that is operating outside of the ultimate sovereignty of God. There is nothing in this world that he has said, I'll choose to create the world in such a way that I'll not be in charge of that, because then he would no longer be the king. And, well, I won't say and. Let's look. What I'm talking about here in God's control of moral evil, I'm talking about the wicked desires that people have, the wicked choices that people make, the wicked actions that people do, and the wicked things that people say. Sin. And often it's done against us and it can be very grievous. And there's a mystery here. But I want us to see how the Bible talks about God's relationship to sin. And remember, We only approach this with the framework that God is good all the time and He is never the doer of any wicked thing in a way that He is tainted by that evil. And yet He is on the throne over everything. Joseph being sold into slavery. You guys know how he talks, right? He says, brothers... You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, when he says that, does he mean, now he meant it for good in order to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today? So, does he mean that God took what was evil and made it good? The brothers did the bad thing, and now God's going to take what is bad and work good out of it, like Romans 8.28 says. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says that He's going to work all things out for the good, even the evil. So, there's two ways that we might be able to read this. God meant it for evil. You meant it. Sorry, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. But I don't think that the biblical authors were interpreting this text to mean that maybe the brothers did the evil part up front, and then after that, God moved in to work it good. No, the meant is something that is is just when the brothers are willing evil, God is willing good and getting Joseph to Egypt. Why do I say that? Here's the commentary in Psalm 105. Now remember what causes Joseph's brothers and father to have to go to Egypt in the first place. Why were there Ishmaelites heading off to Egypt? Well, 
When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Notice what happens. Joseph's in Egypt. God summons the famine. It's not by chance that a famine happens. God makes it happen. God causes the famine that's going to necessitate hunger to move Joseph's brothers and father to Egypt. God's the one who's going to create the famine. But then notice what it says. God had sent a man before them. It wasn't just that the brothers sent him. No, God sent a man before them in order to preserve life. The wickedness of the brothers in sending Joseph was God sending Joseph. They're one and the same. Here's the classic ones, right? Hardening of Pharaoh, Sihon, Rehoboam, and Israel. Let's just look at these texts. The Lord said to Moses, this is before Moses even shows up in the presence of Pharaoh. He says, when you go back to Egypt, you've been away for 40 years, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. You know, throw your uh, staff down and have it turn into a serpent. Put your hand into a cloak and pull it out and make it be leprous. Perform those miracles in front of him. But know this, everything you do will be met with resistance. He doesn't just declare Pharaoh's heart will be hard. No, it's causative. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden it. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, sorry, so that he, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Now we jump to chapter 7. After the first encounter with Pharaoh, we come to chapter 7. Moses gets discouraged. He goes back to God and he becomes resolute in chapter 6. In chapter 7, he goes and encounters Pharaoh when we're gearing up for the very first plague. But at the beginning of chapter 7, what we have is God saying, okay, it's time to show your signs. Put your hand in your cloak, throw down. Put your hand in your cloak, that's what's coming up. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is the promise God has before he ever even meets Pharaoh. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So then what happens is the very first plague, that's what the ellipsis is, and then it says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hard, comma, as the Lord had said. The first time that it explicitly says Pharaoh's heart was hard In chapter 5, Moses goes to the first time with Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I will not let the people go. In the narrative, it doesn't mention his heart is hard, but we see it operative. It's in chapter 7 that you hear the first statement, and the ESV, for whatever reason, some statements make it explicit God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or it says explicitly, Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the passive. 
That's how they translate chapter 8, verse 13. But it, this is not one of those instances. All it says is Pharaoh's heart was hard. But then it says, comma, just as the Lord had said. In fulfillment of God's promise, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard, comma, just as the Lord had said. God, God commanded, let my people go. But he would not let Pharaoh let the people go. His will was, let my people go. And his will was, I don't want him to let my people go. Do you see that? Both of them God ordained. Both of them God purposed. One was His revealed will. One was His sovereign will. And that's where we're going to go next week. We're going to try to understand these two wills of God. But both are true and operative in this text. We see it all through the Bible. How God can actually ordain the very thing that He hates. Rebellion. Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Israel's coming around the east side of the Dead Sea. They get over to Sihon. No. For the Lord your God, why would he not let them pass by? Because the Lord had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. In Moses' mind, Sihon's resistance to Israel no, you cannot let them go, was part of God's purpose to give Israel the land. It was disclosing the wickedness of his heart. But it doesn't just say his heart was hard against God. It says God hardened his heart. So the king, that is Rehoboam, remember God had promised Solomon, because of your sin with all these women and the idolatry that it's taken you into, I'm going to rip the ten tribes away from you in your, during your son's reign. That's Rehoboam. And the ten northern tribes are going to go up and follow Jeroboam. That's 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 12, we read this. So the king, Rehoboam, would not listen to the people. They said, please, don't put us under the burden that Solomon put us under. And he wouldn't listen to them. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shelonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat that Jeroboam would have the northern kingdom. Purpose in the mouth of God directing history and directing the human heart. That's how big our God is. Though Jesus had done so many signs before Israel, His fellow people, they still did not believe Him. So that the word of the Lord, spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, that's Isaiah 53, now it's Isaiah 6. Therefore, they could not believe. Hear that. Therefore, they could not believe. The reason they could not believe was because God's word had predicted it would be so. For, again, Isaiah has said, notice how it's phrased, God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. 
This is, this is heavy stuff. Romans 11, Israel failed to obtain in the history. We read it all throughout the Old Testament. Stubbornness, rebellion, unbelief. Stubbornness, rebellion, unbelief. All the way up to the days of Christ. All the way through the days of Christ to Paul. Israel failed to obtain life. It failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest, notice the passive, were hardened. As it is written, Isaiah 29.10, and then to this very day as added from Deuteronomy 29.4, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. God did it. Their rebellion in Paul's worldview, was brought about by God. He has no notion of a dualism where there is God over here and some other power over here. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift that He should be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. That inscrutableness, that unsearchableness. He hasn't given us all the answers. But he has given us some. Last week I disclosed a purpose for his control of suffering. This week I'm going to disclose a purpose for his controlling of sin. Next week we're going to tackle head on Let me just offer this. I've already said that if you were to say to me, does all this mean that God is the author of sin? Let me just step back and I'll say, if by author you mean that God is the instigator, the doer, the the actor of any wicked thing, I must say, by no means. But I do ask you, and my wife asked me this this week, is it a sinful thing for an author of a story to put a wicked character in it if the purpose of putting that wicked character into the story is in order to show the downfall of that wicked character being triumphed over by what is good? Now we might say, well, that's just a story. It's not real. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. From Genesis to Revelation, it is His story. And He has, and next week I'm going to try to show, I'm going to try to go head on on the question of this particular question. Is God less glorious because He ordained that evil be? And I want us to consider...
How making a world where the cross was necessary. No sin to be saved from, no need for the cross. No wounds to be healed from, no need for the cross. Making a world where the cross is necessary actually is more loving of God to a people who find their joy in knowing God, knowing all about God, knowing how powerful He is, how merciful He is, how just He is. Having a world where those attributes could actually be seen and savored makes God more loving and more glorious. And He's worth being seen for who He is. Their minds were hardened, all those Jews of Paul's day. Not all of them. He's one who, whose mind was awakened. But most of them around were hardened, passive. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Jesus is that veil taken away. How about the death of Jesus? There is no more heinous sin in the world. Hear this. I believe it. There is no more heinous sin in the world than the tagging of God to be a sinner worthy of death. Oh, the blindness to cut off your hope, to cut off your help and say, we want nothing to do with Him. The unjustification of crucifying Christ So we ask, who killed Jesus? Was it Herod? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the centurions and all the other Gentile soldiers? Was it the Jewish leaders? It was their sin. They were the blind ones. They were the Hard-hearted ones. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter will say, You crucified Him! And 3,000 people come to surrender their lives to the Lord who has been resurrected from the dead. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Don't just read that as, Yes, God purposed that Jesus would go to the cross. What is the cross? It's capital punishment. For sin. That's where criminals go. And this entire unjustified killing of the Son of God was brought about because of the definite plan and foreknowledge of the Lord. They crucified Him. They killed Him by the hands of lawless men. So at the one hand, it's the hands of lawless men who crucified Him who were doing, walking in direct accordance with the plan and foreknowledge of God. Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod was there. Pontius Pilate was there. The Gentiles were there. The peoples of Israel were there. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It couldn't have gone any other way. Every cursing that came out of the mouths of the people, crucify Him, crucify Him was fulfilling the purposes of God 
Who hates murder? Who hates all forms of unjustified killing? But the Lord was pleased. He willed to crush him, to put him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He'll move from dead sacrifice on the altar to living person who can see offspring. When the dead person on the altar never married, never had sexual relations, he will have offspring. Jews and Gentiles, all of them adopted. None of them approaching God as Father apart through this Jesus. He will see his offspring. He'll prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand because the Lord was pleased to crush him. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. Here's Paul. We've looked at this text a number of times. He's been saved 20 years. He's written Galatians, both letters to the Thessalonians, Romans, and probably 1 Corinthians. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the intense affliction that came to us in Asia. He's talking about persecution for his being a believer. It's wrong to hate God's children. It's unjustified before the living God to wound and afflict those that He calls precious. But we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we underwent in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. We thought we were going to die. We had the sentence of death upon ourselves. We've been saved, sanctified in our growth for 20 years. I don't want you to be unaware that I've been at this for 20 years. I've already written books of the Bible. Why would God let me undergo such persecution? Did God? We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God. Notice the purpose statement. I don't want you to be unaware of the persecution that we underwent. It wasn't by chance. I've been saved for 20 years, but there was still so much self-reliance in my soul that God almost had to kill me to weed it out of me. That's what he says. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God. And every one of those persecutors' wrath and curses and antagonism was sin. So that he would not trust in himself but in God who raises the dead. Just looking big picture here. God gave them up. That's how Romans 1 says. They sinned, they sinned. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. Sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin is judgment. 
It's part of the judgment. And if you find yourself bound up in sin, maybe you need to pray for mercy. For forgiveness, wherein the judgment that you are walking in might be taken off of you and put on the Son of God at the cross. But in God's giving them up over to their debased mind, giving them up over to impure lust, He's judging them. Their sin is not only worthy of judgment, their sin is judgment itself. And God is working it. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. I hear that and I think about my loved ones who don't know the Lord. What does it do inside of you? I pray that it doesn't make you angry. I pray that it humbles you and moves you to pray. Because He alone holds the human heart. And He gave you mercy. He could still give them mercy. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everything for His purpose. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. A man steps her from the Lord. How then can man discern his way? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Hear that. As you consider wayward nations, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. I know this. I, I know this. You've disclosed it to me. I know that you're this big. And I feel very, very small. I need you to act, O God, because I am holding nothing. I'm not bringing anything to the table. All I can do is is request. But you are a God who, in light of blood-bought grace, does not give your children stones when we ask for bread. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Oh God, overcome resistance. God works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. So here's my conclusion, and I think we're going to have time for me to get where I want to get. God controls all things, including moral evil, yet in a way that He is not the doer of any wicked thing. And that's where we're going to go next week. How is that possible? That he can be over all things and yet not the doer of any wicked thing. And I think, I think there's a framework for understanding this. Where I can be responsible and God can be absolutely sovereign. There's mystery, but I think we can go further than we have. Beyond just describing what the scripture says, but actually figuring out how to put it together in a, in a way that can help us. He ordains all things that happen, including human sin. So what does this mean? I want to take it in two directions. First, pray. 
Because your holiness tomorrow, your holiness tonight, is dependent on our Jesus. So all of this theology can work in us just deeper lives of dependence on our God. Because this is not going to be worked up in me. I've got nothing in me that's good enough. Every desire that is pleasing has been placed there by the Spirit. It's the desire of the Spirit produced by the Spirit versus the desires produced by the flesh, says Paul in Galatians 5. And the beauty is that as believers, we actually have a new force working on our souls. Before we were believers, all we had was the flesh producing desires in our heart. And we were doing exactly what we wanted to do. Sin, sin, sin. And now we have another influencer. The Spirit of God who comes in and overcomes our resistance, creates new desires in our soul. So pray Pray, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, O God. Fill me with your spirit that I can walk as you want me to walk. That I can respond to my children as you want me to respond. That I can love and serve my wife, my husband, as you want me to. That I cannot be a taker, but that I can be a receiver and a giver. Let them not have dominion over me, these sins. And if you answer that, then, then, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Because you've acted. How should I respond to this kind of big theology? It should move us to plead to God to help us become more holy. Because He alone can sanctify us. Keep steady my steps, O Lord, according to Your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. We should be praying like that. I want pure eyes to not look at things that are, that are not healthy for me. I want to see you. I want to see you. And the pure in heart will see you. So awaken desires for me to see you more than to see that stuff that objectifies, dehumanizes. I don't want to look at that. God, awaken those kind of desires in my soul for purity to hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, I want that. Plead for it. This kind of doctrine of the bigness of God should move us to pray that way, with extreme passion, extreme urgency, not letting a morning go by that I don't open up this book and plead for help because I know my neediness and I know that that, that the next five minutes are fully dependent on this big God and I want to please Him. And I want Him to keep me from stumbling. So we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in me. In me as it is in heaven. But this is not all that this doctrine teaches us. Because this world is not just me and God. There's a whole bunch of wicked people out there. And their sins against us can be deeply hard and hurtful. And so we we also pray, lead us not into temptation, but also God, deliver us from the work of the evil one as he works in the lives of other people against us. Protect our children from the work of the evil one. Protect my spouse. Protect our church leaders. The enemy is like a lion seeking to steal and kill and destroy. And God has come that we might have life. So God, protect us 
guard us. And when suffering comes, carry us. Here's our hope. New covenant promise. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me. I often go to bed thinking about this when I've had a hard, hard day of sin. God, you are the one who can keep me where I need to be. So tomorrow morning, birth in me through fresh mercies at dawn. Birth in me the right kind of fear. So now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, Paul says. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Then he says this, He who promised is faithful. He will do it. That's the promise that every blood-bought believer, everyone who's been captured by God, everyone who is one of the sheep who hear God's voice, who knows Him, who follows Him, who's been given eternal life, all of those who will never perish, all of those who are in the Son's hand, who are in the Father's hand, all of those can claim, He who calls me is faithful. He will do it. So I go to bed not trusting in my own strength to overcome my sin tomorrow. I go to bed trusting in God's strength to work it in me because He's promised He will do it for all those who are His. And finally, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's hope. That's hope. He doesn't do it perfectly overnight. He doesn't save us immediately. Next week we're going to consider why. Why doesn't He just make us perfect right now? There's a reason. I think your eternal joy is at stake in God's not doing that. We'll talk about that, I pray. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Father, we long to be presented before Your presence Your presence of glory with great joy. I thank you that you are all good all the time and you are all powerful all the time. And that leaves us struggling to discern what's going on all all the time. But it also leaves us, God, dependent. And you oppose the proud and you give grace to humble people who, who treasure Christ and see their need for Christ all the time and in every way. And I pray that it would be so for those in this class. As we go out from here, may we have a a deeper hunger to be prayerful with that God-dependent, needy, looking to you for strength and fighting and working hard with all the grace and all the power that you work in us. Please, make your bride beautiful. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. 
proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.